Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in a hotel in Stockholm. What hotel am I in here? Hotel Malmö. Hotel Malmö. 1950s uh, functionalism. <laughs> 1950s functionalism. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, it has a name. And I'm here with Jöran Berlin, an old friend of mine, and I was thinking this morning that we've known one another, I think, 12 years. Yeah. So I think we met here in Stockholm yeah. in 2002. Yeah. Maybe. Or yeah. in Barcelona, maybe. Uh, in 2002. Yeah, it was in Barcelona. Barcelona it actually. might have been there. So. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. But you were in Stockholm in 2002. But then I came well. and visited. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. and that's when we spent a little more time together. And now, um, here we are, as you say, in 50s functionalism. What was the story of 50s functionalism in Sweden? No, it's, uh, uh, you could say it's a height of the people's home. I mean, they, the social democratic uh, policy of, of building new homes to get away with poor housing and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which, which really started in the, the thir- late 30s and the 1940s, but, mm-hmm. but peaked, you could say, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's there were a lot of new houses built uh, in the functionalist style, which would be functional for, mm-hmm. for and easy to keep clean bright, a lot of space, and uh, not a lot of sort of jugend uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, ornaments and stuff like that. So, uh, uh, and it's, uh, well, today it's uh, considered, it's, it's, it's uh, reminiscent of um, Art Deco. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, a lot of people today feel nostalgic this era, not only because of the architecture, but, but also because of the, the people's home, the idea of social yeah. democracy and uh, the welfare state, basically. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And a lot of us think about project housing, for example, as an ill-conceived attempt to lift people out of poverty, but here it was done somewhat differently. And of course, Sweden, rather like South Korea, went through a very radical transformation from an agrarian to a manufacturing society. Yes, yes. I mean, Sweden was quite was industrialized quite late compared to to England and Germany, for yeah, example. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, there are sort of economic historians who says that uh, that Sweden, t- in the beginning of the 20th century, was really a backward yeah, country. Yeah, so, yeah. but but it rose quite quickly. I mean, the the, the industries uh, rose quite quickly. Was Wood, of course. There's a lot of wood in Sweden, so you have mm. these kinds of industries and iron from the north of Sweden. Right, the, which is still an important. Yeah, resource. it's still yeah, still still an important resource. I mean, it's important to the extent that they are actually moving the town of Kiruna, which was mm. built around the mine, but now the mine itself is sinking the foundation. Yes, the well, it's a risk yeah. of so you have to move the, yeah. the entire town yeah. of Kiruna, yeah. <laughs> a couple of kilometers away, uh, uh, which is a fascinating project also yeah. in terms of social, social yeah. engineering. And, uh, yeah, sure, and sure. And, uh, but now we live in a very different time politically. There are still important residues and social democracy remains important politically in Sweden, but its long hegemony is over. Yeah, yes. In the last election, I mean, the social... We had a, an eight-year uh, conservative liberal uh, uh, government uh, which was replaced by a 
much weaker coalition of Social Democrats and the Green Party, but they don't have their own majority in the parliament, so they have to, in each and every single question, they have to seek uh, seek uh, support from other other parties. And and uh, one of the one of the uh, sort of dramatic changes to Swedish politics is that uh, that the uh, xenophobic Sweden Democrats has mm. come into power and actually mm. have uh, they received 13% of the votes in the last election so they are, they are actually a, a uh, they have a, a quite a significant role in the parliament right uh, right so it's a scary time and the yeah. the government relies on the communists or former communists well they didn't think they right? yeah they sometimes but it was a big disappointment to Communist or the left party, as they call them, so right. they have dropped the communist. Uh, so, so it's the left party uh, because they anticipated to be in coalition with the Social Democrats and the Green Party, but they were left outside of that coalition. I mean, even if the left party would have been included, they wouldn't have had their own majority because of the Sweden Democrats being being actually the third biggest party in Sweden. After the Social Democrats and, and the uh, Moderates, uh, the Conservative Party. Would the Conservative Party go into coalition with them, or would they regard them as uh, too toxic? Uh, they wouldn't go into coalition, and the, the, the former Prime Minister of Sweden was actually uh, made quite strong statements against them. However, uh, the, the reason why the Social Democrats came into power in coalition with the Green was that the, the moderates lost quite a, a substantial amount of their voters in the, this last election and, and many of those voters on the left or, or on the right flank of the party they went to the Sweden Democrats. Right, 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 right. So, so in that sense there is a connection but, but the official policies of, of uh, the moderates is uh, that uh, they don't want to be associated with, right. with them. So, so, and there is a sort of, I, I think that's, it's a divided party in that sense. Yeah. You have the right. old, more conservative uh, part, and then the, the more liberal, social liberal, you could even say perhaps, uh, part of, of the moderates. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on now to your own work, because this conversation fascinates me, but the main <laughs> thing I want to get at is to feature some of the things that you are doing and have done. I know you've just come back from Ukraine. Yes. Um, tell, tell us about the research you're up to right now. Well, it, it started out, I, I always was interested since uh, 10 years or so in, in uh, the phenomenon of nation branding. It, it dealt with when I was doing research on Estonia, uh, and this is in 2002 actually. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we had a, a huge project, comparative research between Estonia and Sweden. Estonia being a post-socialist country, uh, quite a uh, short history of sovereignty, uh, uh, whereas Sweden is a Western democ democracy, more stable in that sense. And, and uh, Estonia started a branding campaign. Uh, I stumbled across that while doing this more general research into the media system mm -hmm. of Estonia. So, and I became fascinated with, with the, the phenomenon. Uh, and then I have an old friend who's an anthropologist, uh, and he is a specialist in India. So, it, it, as it had, and he, he was doing research on India, but 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 also uh, 
part of that involved uh, nation branding and PR campaigning mm -hmm. in, in India. So, so we, we wrote this article where we made a, a comparison or, or a discussion about nation branding in Estonia, one of the smallest nations in the world with 1.3 million people, and India, one of the <laughs> largest nations in, in the countries in the world. So, uh, and I mean, it was the principles of doing branding campaigns were the same, irrespective hmm. of the difference in Whether size. Whether it's a billion or a million. Yes. <laughs> uh, there were, of course, differences uh, as well, but, but, uh, but that was, I mean, we, we both found that fascinating and we applied for money from the Bank of Sweden, Tercentenary Foundation. Uh, no, the Baltic Sea Foundation, sorry. And uh, we, uh, we got the money, so uh, and we started thinking about that around 2012, when the Euro 2012 was, the soccer championship was uh, arranged by, by, hosted by Ukraine and Poland. And in relation to that, Ukraine had uh, some massive campaigning, uh, nation branding campaigning. Uh, trying to attract tourists, so 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 we wanted to start with that focus, but this was of course we started to doing field work last year, 2013. We were there in May doing interviews with people in political administration, uh, PR people, advertisers, uh, etc. Um, uh, and then we came back in October. There was a they they the government were launching their new tourist campaign where they aim to double the inflow of tourists uh, via uh, to, tourist destinations like Crimea and such, mm -hmm. but also uh, they have quite a few uh, UNESCO cultural heritage uh, sites that, that they used for this campaign. So this was mid-October and well six weeks after the, the Euromaidan happened. So which substantially changed the conditions for, well, for, for the branders, of course. Well, for the definition of Ukraine. Yeah, for the definition, uh, yeah, for, I mean, thinking of tourist branding, yeah. when you have lost one of your main uh, tourist destinations, yeah. Crimea is, is, of course, a big blow, and everything came to a halt. Interest interestingly enough, some of the PR people uh, still continued their work uh, to develop their uh, logotypes, their slogans, their uh, picture portfolios, etc. Because to them, prices come and go, but branding campaigns are long-term projects, as they as they tell us. Uh, Maybe they could sell the idea to the Russian tourist yeah, people. <laughs> yes, you know, the mark. But it was, uh, yes, but, but I was there last week, uh, mm -hmm. and it's very different, of course. It's um, uh, the, the tourist industry has, but to the contrary of expanding, it has it's collapsed. Yes, yeah. collapsed yeah. because uh, all the hotels are half empty, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, but, 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 but of course, Ukraine is at war with Russia. Even if it's not sort of official, I mean, it's it's some sort of grey zone of war. But 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 still, there are there are military actions on on Ukrainian territory. Mm. Uh, so, uh, but but you don't see much of that in in Kiev because that's so far away from the front right. line. I mean, Ukraine being such a huge country geographically and and population wise, I mean, it's it's the largest. Uh, country in, geographically in Europe mm. and, and 
a population of 45 million, yeah. it's also yeah. quite, quite substantial. One of the biggest countries. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's, uh, but, but that also, of course, affected the work that we were doing because, because now you have uh, all these things uh, about the information war from Russia. I mean, Russia has a huge uh, propaganda machinery, you could say, uh, uh, through the Russia Today television channel and, and, and other outlets. And, of course, all the, the Russian domestic media. Uh, which you could, you could say it's it's the most important to get the, uh, to get support for Putin, uh, the Putin administration and their activities. Uh, so, and of course you have also information centers uh, in Ukraine, some of which are formed around NGOs, like the Ukraine Crisis Media Center and. Uh, Stop Fake, which is an NGO connected to the journalistic department at the Mohyla Academy. Uh, so, uh, so that's a, that's a lot of, of uh, NGOs that would, which which should be interesting for political scientists, I, I'd say. But I've seen very little of of, um, of more sort of organized research into that. I mean, it's it's a new thing, of course. But, right, uh, but right. it's a, it's. A, I think it, it should be interesting to, to get uh, scholarly attention more, more to these activities. Well, nobody ever accused political scientists of being fast-moving. <laughs> no, no. So you, in a sense, have had to go full circle in that a media system's interest took you into nation branding, but then because the nation fell apart and tourism the mm. same, you've gone back to looking a bit at media systems. Uh, yes, uh, a, bit, a bit, but this is also... Quite, this is work in progress. Sure. <laughs> so it's uh, so we are we are uh, getting. Uh, I work with two colleagues, uh, my, my friend Paul Stolberg, the anthropologist, and, and um, a British uh, guy called Paul Jordan. Uh, so uh, so we're working together and, and collecting interviews and bundle of other materials mm -hmm. from the web. So so. Uh, well, you, well, you know what it's like. You have a lot of material, and you try to bring that into order. So that's where we are now. Sure, sure. And things things are happening all the time. Sure. It's one of the difficulties when you study the contemporary, isn't it? Yeah. When do you quit? When do you say, "Well, I draw the line, and now I send this article off, or whatever it might yeah, be"? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, pragmatically, you could say, "Well." You draw the line when the money runs out from the fingers. <laughs> but because then you have to report back what what you and summarize what you have done and what what's in the sort of near future. What 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 output is that to be? But yeah. but of course, I mean, the world goes on. The things yeah. evolve, and, and you and and with the contemporary, I mean, the thing you published last week could. Well, not be wrong, but but could have quite. You could see that in another light after insight. Yeah, sure, sure. And when it comes to publishing, getting your ideas out there, what are your preferred outlets in terms of either formal scholarly locations or others? Um, I, I wish I could say that I'm. Uh, Engaged in the uh, public media, too, but, but I'm, I'm, I really, I, I'm quite traditional that way. 
So, so in that sense, I publish in journals and uh, and uh, book chapters, uh, etc. Uh, it's um, it would be fascinating to to be have a sort of a more direct output. But on the other hand. It, of course, you discuss these things at conferences. Mm, that's that's sure. the more. Uh, uh, that's I mean, when you publish something in a journal, that's uh, I mean, it's printed, it's there. So if you have anything more to say, you you uh, sort of have to write a new article. Yeah, <laughs> if yeah. you're at a conference and present a paper, you could present the paper at three conferences uh, uh -huh. a couple of weeks uh, in between each other, and that would it might have have the same title, the paper, but it would be different. Uh, sure. Content because thoughts are evolving mm. all the time. Mm. So, which uh, I, I, I like going to conferences because that also gives you quite a direct yep. input into into what you're doing. It brings new thoughts. I mean, when you publish something, it's basically then it's dead. I mean, it's frozen, right. Right. frozen thoughts. You say that, but of course you're a very prolific author. Uh, and I wonder if perhaps we could go back and talk about some of the books and journal materials you've been engaged in. And I, I wondered if we might actually start with a journal that, I'm not sure if you founded it or that you were there right at the beginning, which is about youth culture. Yeah. And it's gone from being a, a regional journal to an international journal. Yes, yes. No, I didn't found it. Uh, I, I didn't. It was uh, founded by Johan uh, Fognes, uh, Kirsten Drockner and uh, some other people uh, in the Nordic uh, countries. Uh, so it grew out of, of the... Uh, this is youth. The youth, youth, uh, youth uh, association. That was a quite strong youth, uh, youth research community in the, in the five Nordic countries. Uh, and they started biannual conferences, mm -hmm. and then the journal grew out of that uh, mm -hmm. that cooperations between between the Nordic countries. So it started, and it it always had uh, one editor from each uh, of the five Nordic countries. Okay. So so Johan Furnes was the first editor, and he was succeeded by Erling Lundström, who was an editor for a couple of years, and then I was the third Swedish editor. I'm the third generation Swedish editor, um, uh, but I stayed quite long. I stayed for 15 years in that journal, uh, and, and when you spend so much time with something, you learn quite quite a lot about publishing. And, uh, sure. Publishing has also changed over these 15 years. Yeah. It's become more instrumental, if you like, mm. for for several reasons. I mean, people when people. Um, when, work with things they tend to be more and more professionalized and sure. but also because of the demands from from uh, funding bodies that you have to uh, and from universities that you have to publish and the competition between universities which is of course not always beneficial for for the enhancement of knowledge because you tend to publish articles that might not differ so much mm -hmm. in between each other. This is the problem with overproduction of knowledge, yes, isn't no. it? And what, when did youth make the decision to go with a commercial publishing house? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, young. Uh, young, young, sorry. Young, young, young is called Young. Yeah, it was, it was uh, self-produced the first year and when I entered into the editorial board, it was, but then, uh, it became uh, published by Sage, mm -hmm. uh, 
it was actually Sage who uh, approached the uh, editorial board uh -huh. uh, and uh, asked if we were interested. So we took up negotiations with them. Uh, it uh, it solved. Uh, it, it was in a way. It was. Um, it was a, uh, one step in this professionalizing yeah, process yeah. because it, it it meant that we got professional help with uh, with yeah. setting the layout and everything mm -hmm. all these things we have done ourselves before yeah. so now we got professional help and uh, proofreading and all these kinds of stuff and and they had uh, quite strict demands on regularity in, in publishing so each issue should be published on time. Uh, I think that was also, it, it was good, but it also sort of a way of making it more instrumental in a way. Uh, yeah. It had its upsides and downsides. It was, it was good to be relieved from the sort of technical work to, 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 yeah. to actually set the pages uh, for each issue. Uh, so uh, I think the quality of that Layout became better. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but but um, yeah, but then uh, we were contracted with Sage London. So this is a sort of a snapshot from the publishing business. And yeah. we, we initially got a five-year contract. Uh, so it was sort of to be renegotiated after five years. And, and uh, when that time happened, we were called to Sage, uh, the Sage office in London. I was a visiting professor in London then, so we also had, had an editorial meeting, and then we ended with to meet the the, the, the Sage people. Uh, so they were quite nice, and we sat down. We told them about the progress of the journal and the uh, the increased inflow of articles because that happened when we went to Sage that. Mm. That was an increase in inflow. I think uh, that also meant that the quality of articles that we published increased. Uh, but then there's uh, just uh, sort of in uh, just in passing say, well, we are. Uh, what what would you say if we move you to the uh, office in Delhi, India? Uh, so this was sort of totally out of the blue. <laughs> we hadn't thought right. about that, so we were looking at each other. <laughs> and then uh, we said, well, mm, well, what if we would like to stay with the London office? <laughs> well, then we terminate the contract. <laughs> so, so it wasn't much of a choice, actually. Gosh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. So, so, so we were... Um, Sort of transferred to the the daily office. Uh, there was were some initial production problems uh, there, but, but I mean, these were professional people also. So 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 it it, it uh, after the first year was some sort of misunderstandings between us, and uh, but but uh, but in the end it worked out okay. But, but it was um, they were very upfront about this uh, that they. They had at the bottom line. It's the economy. <laughs> so, so, so we were. They, they, they thought that we had an okay uh, sort of subscriber uh, volume, but but not okay enough to stay. They, they wanted to uh, lower costs, basically. Yeah. 
the new international division of cultural labor. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that was exactly what it was. So there we go. Yeah. Now, apart from being one of the editors, <laughs> pardon me, one of the editors of Young for a long time, you're also a book author. Yeah. And some of your work has been about young people. Yes, it has been about young people because I started out as a youth culture researcher. I did my PhD on, on, on an ethnographic study of, of young boys extremely interested in, in films on video. This is in the early 90s, yeah. 1990s. Uh, so, and they were swapping films with each other and had international networks of distribution. And this is in, in the pre-internet era, yeah. or in, in the very beginning of the internet era. So this was basically uh, the, the communication via traditional post. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so it was mail rather than email. Yeah, and the interesting thing with those guys were that they never met. They were dispersed all over Sweden. They wrote fan scenes and did amateur videos inspired by what they saw. So, and they they never met in person. So they only had sort of mediated communication with each other, and they had sort of large subscriber bases all around the world. Mm. One of the guys had a fan scene he published in three hundred copies. 30 of which went to Sweden and the rest to the rest of the world. So, uh, But this was a, a kind of cultural production uh, that was based in, in, in uh, cultural consumption. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's like when you play music, you, you, most musicians, they start, they have a favorite bands and they try to uh, mimic those, to play yeah. the guitar or yeah. sing like this or that yeah. person. Or, dance or whatever uh, so and some of these people will become professionals and they will enter yeah. into the media industries which is also was also the case with the guys that I studied so that was my my, my interest uh, for the relations between production and consumption uh, the discussion that we have today with user generated content yeah. etc I mean that's it doesn't derive with the internet of course it, it was there all the time but it was by other communication means and, uh, yep. and, and uh, in other contextual circumstances. So, so uh, yeah. So, so, and I, I published uh, this book, Value and the Media, a couple of years ago, where I tried to sort of rethink what I have, have done since my PhD right. thesis, and uh, in terms of the relation between production and consumption, and bring that. That, uh, to try to historicize this, uh, these discussions about uh, cultural labor, uh, user-generated content, uh, the new business models that the professional media industries are developing in relation to their users, how, how media use contributes to value production within the media industry. But at the same time, there's also free labor as uh, says it's free and, and the meaning that it's 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 free labor for the industries but it's also freely given by by the the, the media users themselves and they also produce I mean the media industries produce economic value but, but that is also produced among media users yeah. it's not primarily economic it's social and cultural values as aesthetic values uh, that 
to uh, sometimes political values. I mean, yeah. you have people engaged in uh, NGOs, for example. So, so, um, and this is what I find fasc most fascinating with, mm. with, the new, with the media environment that we are in now, mm. that, that, that you have this increased uh, relate enhanced relationship between media production and consumption. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was picking up on a theme you'd worked on 20 years earlier, yeah. in fact. Yeah. And um, value in the media is with Routledge, I think. No, is no, it's at Ashgate. It's, it's, oh, it's Ashgate. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, ridiculously expensive and they won't. It's only in hardbacks. It's only in hardbacks. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, it's, uh, so that's a tough one. Well, value is so complicated when it comes to these domains, particularly when cultural studies, in a lot of ways, has argued against the idea of an aesthetic evaluation of texts. Yeah. Um, but has also problematized the notion that their value resides in monetary exchange. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a conceptually important question that never goes away. No, no. Never goes away. I was talking to a librarian in Chile last week who said to me, well, all this, you know, let's suspend notions of a canon. Mm. It's all very well, but I've got a budget and I have to decide which books to buy for yeah. the library. Yeah, it comes, it comes down to, to quite sort of pragmatic decisions, which, which in the end have cultural consequences. Uh, and, uh, uh, as it has, I mean, the, with the media industries, I mean, the media industry wants, wants to make a buck out of to, to their shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to them, I mean, capital is blind in that sense that it doesn't matter that much the, the actual fine-grained cultural aesthetic uh, qualities. Uh, so this is where the media users come in because they have a, an important input into those qualities. That also feeds back into the consumption process. Another interest of mine is, is in technology, how, how, how media technologies are, are the role that they have in these, mm -hmm. in these processes. Because they have, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different thing. You could say it's principally, in principle, similar to uh, make an amateur video film and distribute via uh, the poster, go to the postal office and send it to your colleagues around yeah. the world. Yeah. It takes a bit longer time, uh, but, but uh, in principle it's the same as distributing it via the internet. But, but on the other hand, it's more accessible for the media industries yeah. when it's on the internet. Yeah. Because, I mean, people would... Uh, if... Um, if the media industries would have a way to open the mail for in the postal office, that yeah. would be an outcry. <laughs> but but we don't react when the media industries peek in on, on our sharing our videos with friends on Facebook or on uh, Twitter or wherever we are, we are posting these things. Uh, so it so it makes a difference in the end. There are qualitative sure. differences, yeah. even if some distribution patterns are principally the same. Yeah. If the Swedish mail system opened a packet in which you included photographs of your children, uh, you would be annoyed. But if the people at Facebook looked at your Facebook page where you included photos of your children, you would accept this. Yes, you do that because uh, and this, uh, I do focus groups with, with people of different ages now. Uh, 
because I'm interested in, in this exact process. What, what, how do people actually feel about these new surveillance technologies? Because, yeah. because even if not everybody knows exactly how this is technologically made, they know that Facebook has access, they know that they have ticked this box uh, with the terms of use, uh, etc. So, 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 so in the back of their heads they know that something's happened, they know that Facebook can if they want to use their pictures. But, but on the other hand they get things out of this. So I'm doing interviews with this and that. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a sort of acceptance among most people that this is the case because these technologies are now so so integrated into our social life. Right. So right. so staying outside of, of the social uh, networking media is is very difficult. Especially if you, I mean, if to again talk about young people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to be the only one in your class to not have Facebook. I was interviewing uh, a couple of weeks ago a group of three girls. 17 years old, and I, I told about this girl that had a bad experience on Facebook, so, so she has opted out, so she's not in there. Yep. But she has, so she has to, uh, she has to uh, uh, deal with this situation through her friends. So if yeah. there is a party on Friday night, she has she to finds have, out by word yeah, of mouth. Yeah, she finds out by word of mouth. But that uh, that that means that she's dependent on her friends being yeah. on Facebook. <laughs> so, uh, which uh, and it's a very special, and of course they tell this to me because this is very unusual. <laughs> this is the exception, yeah. not the rule. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's um, so in, in that sense, technology gets integrated into our lives, whether we want it or not. I mean, the, the costs of staying staying outside is, is are is, very real. Yeah. And in your research, in terms of both the connection to technology and young people's lives in general, I think it's fair to say that you are skeptical of the moral panic that often envelops discussions in psychology, sociology, yeah. criminology, and so on about young people. But you seem to me to be adopting a stance that is more cognizant of their free will and creativity than those perspectives. Yes. Um. But I wouldn't, I mean, there are these discussions, and the traditional discussion is that you have a phenomenon, computer games, for example, and then you get some medical doctor say, saying, or psychologist saying that this is harmful, and then you have someone from the media industry saying, well, that's no proof of this being harmful. So, uh, so I, and I think this discussion is, is, I always thought that this is not a very productive <laughs> way of, of dealing with this, because because uh, the, the, uh, those who defend computer games or violent videos, for that matter, the things that I dealt with in, in my PhD research, uh, they, they say, well, there are qualities to this and that, and, uh, and uh, this is not logical, this moral panic is not logical, but there are different kinds of logics. I mean, being a parent has its own logic and trying to prevent one's children from harm is logical in that sense. Being a parent and not wanting your child being hurt or scared mm -hmm. is, is logical. So, so, so I don't buy that, and it's a very 
unproductive way to, to have these moral panic and no, that's illogical uh, debate. Uh, so I think you have to take also when peop when these moral panics arise, it means that some people are concerned, and you have to also take the, their concern right. seriously. seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's the more productive uh, approach, and and I, I mean there's no way to prevent young people because young people are curious. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, yeah. man. Curious by nature, I would say so. So you try to discover things, uh, and uh, sometimes you stumble upon things that you wish you didn't see. I mean, we have all. I mean, you know, yeah. all these things that now flood the internet with ISIS and beheadings. And um, I, personally, I, I I've never clicked on any of those because I can't. I, it's too painful for me to watch. But I know this because I have done it in the past right. and I know where my limits are. But when you're very young, you don't know where your limits are. So, and you can only yeah. explore that by being yeah. hurt sometimes. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, so, so it is a tricky situation. And, and um, the, uh, I would say that the, the way in which one should more productively deal with these, these Problems, if you would like to call them, mm -hmm. that is, is uh, through education. School has an enormously important role there, but we also know that, also from our own. I mean, young people are also a bit skeptical about school. Sometimes most young people, at one point or another, have doubts. They well, they say, well, these teachers, they want to tell me this, but I don't really believe that. So that's a sort of sound skepticism, <laughs> sort of. Uh, Organic uh, critical thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's good. But 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 school also has as a sort of socializing agent also has a, some kind of responsibility to to try to discuss these things. I mean, they school cannot solve these problems. We live in a world where we cannot be prevented from from harm all the time. So, but, but we can have ways to deal with that. Sure. In our private sure. individual sure. lives, and uh, school and parents, of course, uh, are enormously important. So, do you think that this is a good argument in favour of additional media education? Yes, I, th I think. Uh, I think actually, one should uh, put more emphasis on on media education in schools. I'm. I'm um, and I mean all the things. Uh, I mean, there's great work done in this area by Sonia Livingstone and others uh, about mm. internet safety uh, and stuff like that. And and um, I wish that more teachers could could go into further education courses. I mean, yeah. to 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 at least know that this stuff exists out there and that, and that there are sort of educational tools that you can that you can use and that, that there is research on on that that is sound. I think I think Sonia Livingstone stands to this is is very sound. It's I mean it's not the moral panic stance, it's not the know everything that pe people look at things yeah. because it's good for them. I mean that's yeah. the the opposite uh, argument. So so uh, so there are important research made uh, out yeah. there. So yeah. it's, 
but this has to do with educating the educators. Uh, the uh, teacher training programs at universities yeah. has to be more aware of, of, of media education. And, uh, yeah. It's not always that they are, I would say. And what about other areas of your career, Fiona? Uh, youth is an ongoing theme, media is an ongoing theme, yeah. it's fair to say. The nation, probably. Yeah, that's a fairly recent interest yeah. of mine that comes to me. I mean, uh, really, I'm not a, any. Uh, I'm not as well read into the uh, literature on nationalism and uh, nation building and, and all of these things as my colleague Per is the anthropologist and right. that works with me in, in this nation branding project. So, so he's really the expert in this project on <laughs> nation and nationalism. But, but it, but, but. But at the bottom line, it also, I mean, when I worked with youth, it dealt with uh, subjective and collective identities, and, and nationalism also deals with collective identities. I mean, uh, in the Benedict Anderson sense, you have these imagined communities, but they are real in so far that people believe that they are real. And they act based on their yeah. beliefs. Yes, so, so and uh, this is of course why we have conflicts also between, um, we have wars, uh, like we have in Ukraine now, I and mean, people believe in certain things to the extent that they are prepared to go out and kill each other yeah. uh, and risk their own lives. So it's, it's a complex thing, uh, uh, but it also it's also a cultural thing. I mean, it's, we are cultural beings and we we uh, identify with certain things, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we also, whether we want it or not, these collective identity, collective national identity, is there to yeah. a certain, certain extent. Yeah. It it doesn't reveal all the time. It's a sort of a banal nationalism, as Michael Gillick says, uh, mm -hmm. that, that that we have that that we that we carry around all the time. It's not. Not often activated. It's not necessarily spectacular. No, no, very no, no, no. Yeah, but it yeah. reveal it can reveal when you're out of context. Me being a Swede, I recognize my Swedishness when I'm confronted in another country with other uh, habits or yeah. other things. You can you can say, "Wow, this is uh, this is my Swedishness revealing revealing itself." <laughs> and speaking of that, I wondered if we've got about ten minutes left. If uh, apart from anything else you may wish to discuss, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about media and cultural studies in general, yeah. and where you see the field heading, but also where you see it heading and where it's been in Sweden in particular. So a more general synoptic mm. view, kind of Olympian oh. attitude, <laughs> oh. from your not inconsiderable height. <laughs> what oh, do you well. see when you look down on your subjects? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the relation between media studies as a research field uh, and uh, cultural studies, I mean, I'm trained in that tradition uh, because, because I worked close together with uh, Johan Fugnes uh, and, uh, and his projects, uh, that, that was what brought me into the academy yeah. actually. Uh -huh. uh, uh, and. Uh, that has a, had a cultural approach to it, but I'm also my, my undergraduate training is in cinema studies, so mm -hmm. so I come come from a more qualitative uh, humanities uh, side of, of academy. 
Uh, and uh, to me, the combination, I mean, I've always had this cultural perspective on, on the media. Uh, uh, wherever that line goes, to yeah. the cultural perspective, to yeah. social, because there, there is a certain extent of, of social sciences in there. I mean, you would think of the Frankfurt School, Adorno, and the, the Adorno of uh, aesthetic theory uh, is very humanities, but, but they also incorporate corporate thinking from, from social sciences, so that's, that's no real clear boundary, of course. Yeah. But in, in the Swedish context, if, uh, you could say that uh, you have a division between different departments and their, their approaches, and quite many of them have, have cultural approaches. Uh, I think that has to do with the um, development of media and communication studies in Sweden, because at different universities, it grew out of different uh, uh -huh. different mother disciplines, uh -huh. you could say. In Gothenburg, I mean, it grew out of political science. So, uh, no wonder they have a more political science approach sure. to, sure. to their subject there. Yeah. And in, yeah. in Lund, they grew out of sociology. Whereas uh, in Stockholm, where I took my PhD, uh, I, I started to work, uh, work actually, I before I became a PhD student, uh, together with Johan Furnias uh, in his projects on, on youth culture as an assistant. Uh, uh, and that was placed at, 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 at some, a center called Center for Mass Communication Research, uh, which was a multidisciplinary center. Yeah. It had philosophers, right. people from right. comparative literature, oh, sociologists, uh -huh. psychologists, so there was a, a mixture of people. Uh, so, so it was, and I would say that the people coming from from the uh, social science part, yeah. that mixture, <laughs> they were also very culturally oriented. But it was the cultural um, uh, approach from social sciences, the George Gerbner cultural indicators uh, right. side. But it's still yeah. a cultural perspective. Sure, sure. It's another cultural and perspective. And he, he was a poet. Yeah, yes. I mean, started out life as a Hungarian poet. Yeah, yes. He was not Paul Lazarsfeld in terms of no, no. straight down the line social no. science, was he? And his brother was a filmmaker. Oh, was he? I didn't <laughs> yes, know. That. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, his brother was, who's, um, uh, who's made the, the, um, the famous. Um, uh, oh, it slips in my mind. Uh, the um, Marlon Brando motorcycle. Ah, the wild ones. The wild ones, yes, yes. That was Gerdner's brother? Yeah. <laughs> so, That's uh, yes. So, but, but, uh, but still, I mean, so there are different cultural yeah. approaches. Approaches. You can course. see that. But, but they are all cultural. Yeah. <laughs> you sure, should also sure. acknowledge that. Uh, and, uh, and, and I find that fascinating. There are quite interesting stuff made by George Gerdner. I mean, so, sure. Sure. This is this notion of the cultivation analysis, yes. it's called, and its capacity to sidestep the issue of media effects, mm. of whether or not a particular technology and set of programs could do things to people's minds. Uh, instead saying, well, rather than try to analyze this psychologically, individually, let's look at what the general cultural mm. field is, which we can approach statistically mm. by seeing what the messages are that are available to Codifying, yeah. and it was a very progressive project. 
because it showed again and again in the case of the United States how much violence, for example, mm. they had a violence index, was articulated around ratios of violence done by black men to others mm. on the screen, in drama and in the news, how those ratios were completely out of sync with real-world ratios. Mm. Mm. And of course they were more negative than that television depiction. So mm. they did some very valuable work. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And it's, I mean, it's... Uh thing that George Germer used to say, who is telling all the stories? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, at the bottom of it, it's, it, it's about narrative and the power of narratives to, to form our, our cultural perceptions of, of, of the world around us. So, so which is, a, is, is of course, it, it's a, a cultural effect, yeah. it's not a media effect. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, a cultural system that we, we live in. So that was a big influence on you because of yeah, it was, it was one. Well, but it was one of them uh, because I was always interested in in the work of uh, people from the Birmingham School, uh, Stuart Hall and, and uh, the Cavendish, David Morley, of course. So, so uh, which were also people that were uh, sort of visiting the Center for Mass Communication Research. Well, not Stuart Hall. He, 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 but but also other other people like Dennis Rodway and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and others. Uh, nice people too. Yes, they're nice, nice people. Really nice people. Yes. So so when I entered into the PhD training program, we had actually these people coming in to lecture uh -huh. on specific uh -huh. courses on perception theory and uh, stuff like that. So so which was of course a huge influence on. Them. And uh, uh, you could say that in, in the Swedish media and communication studies uh, world, yeah. uh, you could say that th these people have had a, a huge influence, not on, on the entire field, but on a quite substantial part of, of this field. Right. Uh, so, so I'm not unique in any sense. No, sure. that but you've been around through the formation of much of this, and that is why yeah. I was interested in your take. Yes, yes. All the roads seem to lead to Europe. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. No? But but it, as it happened, when I took my PhD, in, in, uh, I, I, I handed it over to the publisher in the autumn of 1997 and defended it in, in the beginning of 1998. But simultaneously, so the term university started. So, uh, and I got hired together with uh, Stefan Eriksson who was actually the one who was there first, uh, who was also doing his PhD at Stockholm University. Uh -huh. So we were colleagues and we had developed courses at Stockholm University and then we were hired by Sudeton University yeah. so in order to build up the department. So, yeah. which is, and of course we uh, formed it uh, against the background of our own interests, yeah. which, which was, had a cultural, more humanities-oriented approach. Right. Uh, and uh, well, that's a long time ago now, it's uh, 17 years ago. <laughs> so, but we started out quite small and have grown substantially. But still, uh, and now we work together with uh, in a department together with uh, philosophy, art history, aesthetics, uh, among other disciplines. But, but these are the main sort of uh, core of our PhD right. training program, for example. Mainly on the humanities. Yeah, yeah. Gender studies is in there as well, so uh, we bring different parts to this, uh, 
this environment. I would say so. But it's a it's a nice working working environment. And in terms of the social sciences that you engage in, because you also know about political economy, you know about ethnography, you know about audience research, are these things you taught yourself? You learned yourself, you know, you uh, autodidact. Well, well, not really, because when I when I when I I said that my undergraduate is in, in cinema studies. Yeah. But when I read cinema studies, media and communication studies didn't exist. So cinema studies, I was very interested in cinema. But uh, the second semester, you could choose between cinema studies proper and cinema studies with a television. Approach. Cinema studies improper. <laughs> improper, yeah. <laughs> so, and I was, uh, I was all, I, 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 I always had a broader interest than only cinema. I, yeah. I had an interest right. in media more generally. So, right. so I took the um, television approach to cinema studies, which was the closest you could come to media and communication studies in those yeah, days. Yeah, and yeah. with television, you get more social science. Than you get yes, you do. So, I, so I was reading. Uh, Things by Herbert Schiller and those political yep. economists. Yep. Uh, uh, what else? But so it was a mixture of, of social science and, and the humanities, you could say, yeah. which I found found quite uh, productive actually in order to understand because. But I mean, there is a great deal of um, benefit to combining a political economy. Perspective with a cultural approach, a cultural studies approach. Sure. Well, uh, I, I never saw those as, uh, as mutually exclusive. Well, you certainly really. combine them along with other things. You're very methodologically promiscuous, uh, <laughs> said in a positive yeah, way, yeah. light, because you know you're interested in the problem, mm. not the fetish of disciplinary obedience. No, no. So you're very Capacious, very open, and my sense is that so the term is very open. Yes. That you. Yeah, we we try to be. I mean, of course, we have our limits as everybody else. So so. Uh, yeah. um, but it's um. But I used to say it's it's to build up a department. You are faced with two problems, or problems, well, two two tasks. You should do excellent research, and you should do teaching. Yeah. Uh, and research doesn't have disciplinary boundaries. I mean, you are after a scientific problem and then you find the solution yep. to solve that problem. Uh, whereas if you are, have a discipline and you are teaching, uh, have a teaching curriculum, you have to uh, sort of form that in advance. You don't really have a problem to solve. You have some, uh, you have knowledge to disseminate mm. and you have to put that in a box, <laughs> so to speak. So this is when you have to start thinking limits mm, okay. uh, uh, and of course those limits are never fixed I mean disciplines develop in relation to research of course but but they are I would say that they are more fixed than uh, than, uh, than than research not least because of the Administrification of universities. Yeah, if you yes, will, you're enrolled in a thing called X yeah, biology. And we have to. Bottom. I mean, last week we were, were discussing. Uh, we had to hand in the literature lists for next semester because they have to be decided on right. by the board, uh, and they will be read by students in uh, six months. So if there is an, a new article that is fantastic and sort of. Yeah throws everything you knew around. 
I cannot use You can't use I it. I can't use it because it's not decided on by the board. So you have a, a sort of administrative structure uh, when you are dealing with teaching that you don't really have when you do research. Because if you find that new article that throws everything you knew last week overboard, then you will use that article and you will change your way of thinking. I don't think I'd do very well teaching in the <laughs> Swedish system if I had to have my curricula vetted so no. rigorously, thoroughly and early. But it's, uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, you could say, I think this is, is the general international trend. Of, it's of, true. So as Sweden, Swedish, the Swedish academic system might be more law-abiding, yeah. more yeah. <laughs> regular rule followers yeah. than, yeah. than yeah. other countries. But, but, uh, this no, is, it's the way this of the world. Direction. It gets back yeah. to the governmentalization yeah. that yes. you were describing earlier when you talked about the more instrumental attitude to publishing. Yes, yes, exactly. So this is, uh, I mean, it's, um, these are sort of ways that we organize our societies. Uh, so, and they are becoming, in a way, more efficient, but in a way also what uh, the Frankfurt School would say more administered. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so and, uh, and I think it's also, as researchers, in order to produce new knowledge, we have to challenge those structures, right. this administrative thinking to, to think outside of the box or whatever you would like yeah. to call it. So it's, it's, it's the task of critical research, really. To, yeah, to, to, do that. to do that. Well, Joran, thank you so much for giving up this time and explaining something of your really quite remarkable I'd urge people to go and read your work, which folks can find in English in lots of places. But also, I'd urge you to come back to the pod when you've finished your nation branding, since you've already tried to destroy one nation during the course of this research. <laughs> uh, we laugh, but of course we also weep for the, um, the tragedy and yes. the trauma in Ukraine. Um, if you would come back and talk to us again about Ukraine and what happened and what will happen, and where your nation branding project has taken you, that would be really great. Yeah, thank you. I'd be happy to. Terrific.